Welcome to Thinking Reimagined, produced by Live Abundantly. Live Abundantly is committed to justice, equity, equality, diversity, and inclusion for the creation of a global society which respects the rights and well-being of all citizens. We invite you to visit our website livesabundantly.com to support our initiatives for women, youth and children. Thinking Reimagined, changing the mindset for For a better better global society. society. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Welcome to another episode of the Think and Reimagine podcast. I am Nifemi Oguntuye. And it's the 10th of December, 2021. Um, i like to say Merry Christmas to everyone and Happy New Year in advance. Uh, it's also pretty much a busy month here. Um, Dr. Amma's birthday was just some two days ago. Um, happy birthday to Dr. Amma. Happy birthday to Peter Amad Boyo. I mean, we have quite a number of people celebrating the birthday in December. My two daughters are also born in December. Wow. I, I don't know if um, Olabi Wonyo Mubolaji is also born in December. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you're the only one without December birthday affirmation. All right, if you're watching us live, thank you for joining. And we're discussing movies today. Isn't that amazing? We're talking movies. Um, so maybe I should just um, give you a little bit of suspense. I'm going to let the trailer play. And then when we return, I'll tell you more about why we're here. I can hear my neighbor crying, saying I can't breathe. How do you hear of a senseless murder? And now I'm in the struggle of an officer killing your son in the middle of the street. Saying I can't leave. Put your lighters up for Mike Brown. The percentage of black people in Ferguson is 67%, and only 6% of the cops are black. That's what you call the good old white boys club, and that's going to end. They're always showing the rage and the anger, and that's not really where protest comes from. The commitment comes from the love. Love is the only thing that really allows us to keep going forward. Come together united to make that change against one common enemy, the system. You need to disperse immediately. I've never been so brokenhearted in my life. The areas that were burned down, those were areas where people who are economically challenged live. I know that this is not a perfect community. I know that we have things that we have to change, and I am committed to being part of that change. Nobody woke up that morning when their loved one was dying and say, hey, I want to be the face of the movement. Losing a child is, is hard. We have to do things that build us back up. We must organize. The death of my son did do change. Mike Brown equals change. Is it over? It's not never over. It's just the beginning. I will stay for you. Would you stay for me? Everybody deserves to be free. All right. The movie's Ferguson Rises. And um, if you haven't seen the documentary, 
I bet we'll be looking for it after this book, uh, after this podcast. Um, so I saw it some two nights ago, and um, it was a mixture of emotions for me. I was sad. I was mad. I stopped watching at the time, returned to it later. Um, it's the inspiring story of residents of Ferguson in misery, um, talking about the loss and how they, you know, kick-started some sort of a modern-day civil rights movement. Um, so I'm joined right now by the director himself, multiple award-winning director, Mobolaji Olabimono. And he also uh, just recently won the Audience Award at the Tribeca Film Festival. Mr. Labiwano, thank you for joining. Thank this you for conversation having me. Today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Dr. Ama is here, Executive Director, Leave Abundantly. Dr. Ama, good to see you. And Wonderful welcome. to be here. Peter Amon Boyo is of the Nollywood, is representing the Nollywood. <laughs> <laughs> in this conversation, uh, movie director as well, actor, thank you so much for joining this conversation. Thank you so very much. I'd like to begin with um, um, some form of a feedback, <clears throat> and I'm sure that the director's used to this already. I'd like to hear from you um, what you gleaned from that documentary, how it made you feel, and what you think about it. I'm going to begin with Dr. Amon. Well, thank you, Nufemi. And I also want to start by thanking Mr. Olambiwanu for joining us today, live from Los Angeles. I do know it's past midnight and your willingness to um, be with us in Nigeria to talk about your award-winning film. And I have no doubt the Academy World, Academy, it's going to look at it and give it a nod. It is a powerful film. It is raw. It is gritty. It's unforgiving. It's unforgettable. I, I can't think of any other adjectives, but it's just superbly crafty. Um, your talent is there, but the way you tell the story, the way you bring it alive, the way you let us realize that on a day like today, which is Human Rights Day, that it is so important to recognize people's rights, the rights of every single person, regardless of your color, regardless of your sexual orientation, regardless of your socioeconomic status is relevant. Um, and I hope that more people will watch this film and take lessons from it on how to treat others. We have to fight for equality in this world, not just equality, but equity. Equality and equity are so um, prevalent. Well, it's prevalent through your film, how important it is, but it is not at the forefront of the minds of stakeholders. So I do hope that people are listening and people are watching and together we can collectively make a difference in this world. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Abner. Peter Boyle, um, so Brown Jr.'s body laid on the floor for four hours and a half 
And I think that's that's the saddest part of that story for me. I mean, I, I was just thinking, what was running through the minds of the cops? What exactly were they doing? One of them shot the boy. I mean, so why why keep his body on the floor for that long? Uh, what really struck a chord in you when you saw that documentary? Well, first of all, um, like Dr. Alman said, this film is really powerful. When I saw it, I mean, I. I've known um, it, it was being done for a while, but to actually see the whole film, it struck a lot of emotions in me. Um, first of all, I didn't even know he was on the ground for four and a half hours. That is totally disrespectful, inhuman. Um, there's so many adjectives I can use to describe it. What did it happen if he was a um, white young person man would he have been on the floor for four and a half hours baking in 98 degree weather i mean that struck so much emotion so much anger so much pain empathy sympathy and all of that and the way it was depicted um in this film this documentary because most of it was actual events it struck so many chords in me i was so angry and like a lot of people i watched it for like 10 minutes and i turned it off and then I knew I had to go back and watch it. So it's like the father said, is it over? It's not ever over. This is just the beginning. This has been happening for so many centuries. And it's not even about the black or white anymore. It's about police brutality. It's about oppression. I mean, it's, it's the whole world stood up. You know, you know, the whole world stood up. Black lives matter. All lives matter. But when you treat black people the same way you treat white people, then all lives matter. Do you understand? It was just an amazing film to watch. I'm still like passionate and emotional about it that I can't even express everything I want to say. But yes, that four and a half hours, it really did me in. I shed tears. I mean, that is somebody's child. That is somebody's brother. That is an 18 year old boy. It's, he's not, he, did, he was unarmed. Why was he on the floor, on the ground, on the street for four and a half hours? What were they processing? I mean, what were they doing? Why? The question is why? Absolutely, Mr. Boyu. You know, another powerful scene in that um, documentary for me was um, when some of those people gathered in a room and were talking about the losses, who they were representing. And I looked at quite a number of people who now have a challenge ahead of them to heal, to forgive, and also to do something and move on with their lives. Um, Mr. Olabiwonu, I know you've answered this question quite a number of times about what inspired you know, this work. Uh, for you, it won't just be a story because being an African yourself, or perhaps an African-American now, uh, why do you think, did you think it, important to tell the story through a documentary uh, the way you have done. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it was very much a, a spiritual process for me. I'm going to say it that way. Um, my wife was uh, seven months pregnant with our son. And, um, and I felt this um, sort of nagging question that I knew that one day my son would ask me, what did you do at this historical moment to make a difference? What did you do at this historical moment to take a stand? And and I could I I could see 
or hear him as asking me that question, um, you know, 12 years into the future. And I, and I knew that I couldn't have my answer be that I did nothing. And so that sort of called me forth the idea that, um, you know, my wife was pregnant. I saw myself on the ground. I saw my son on the ground, potentially. I saw friends, family, all kinds of loved ones on the ground. And, um, and I knew that at some point I would have to answer that question and I would have to, um, there would be in, in a sense a reckoning, right? That w where I would, I would have to be responsible for the choices I made at this historic moment. And if I did nothing, um, that was not going to leave my son with the kind of future and the kind of understanding of the world that I, that I wanted him to have. And what I saw on the news was, um, was simply the trauma and, um, you know, as spiritual people, we know that, um, that there's, always tra there's always trauma, but there's also always resurrection, right? And, uh, and this film for me is, 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 is about the trauma, but also about the resurrection. I think I wanted to leave my child and other people's children with the idea that, um, that resurrection is possible, that resilience is possible, that we can find, um, we can find some sort of hope, we can find some sort of um, through community, through organizing, through um, through beginning to um, to find purpose in our pain, um, and I saw that um, Michael Brown Senior was doing that, and I began to um, I began to initiate conversations with with him that really then further inspired me to to, um, to focus on his message and to focus on that message for my child and for other people's children and for and for people in general across the world. Right, um, we know these horrific hor we hear about these horrific moments but we often don't hear about the lives that were transformed for the better as a result of those moments. The Michael Brown incident happened in 2014, right? Right. How long did he take you? I mean, this spiritual journey, how long did he take you to put it all together to the point where we now have this fantastic documentary? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it took me um, about six and a half years or so, maybe a little bit over, maybe a little bit over six years and a couple of months um, to finish the documentary, maybe six and a half years. I'd have to, I'd have to think exactly um, <clears throat> about the uh, specific time that we finished it. But um, between um, starting it and broadcasting on television here in the United States, um, it was exactly, almost exactly seven years um, and, um, and a very, uh, a very challenging uh, process to say the least, um, you know, a lot of uh, independent fundraising, um, a, a lot of, um, you know, sort of grassroots um, uh, activities to really, uh, and a lot of support from people like yourselves um, to really get this to the place um, where it was, it was actually done and to then, you know, now exhibit it to the world and to finally be, um, I believe, based on my research, the first um, Nigerian to qualify for the Academy Award category in documentary um, filmmaking, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a proud moment for me. And, uh, you know, and I hope certainly that it's a proud moment for, for Nigeria, because, um, you know, it's imperative that we tell our own stories and, 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 and we forget that, um, I think, uh, in, in, the, in 1984, I believe the book, 1984, it said, he who controls the past controls the future and therefore the present. And, uh, and, and if we do not, tell our own stories, someone else tells them for us and therefore they control our interpretation and our understanding of the past for generations to come and therefore they control our future as well. 
And I think what we've seen historically is that Europeans have told the stories of Africans, of African-American people, and we haven't told our own stories. And, um, and what has been missing oftentimes from those stories is, um, is what we really need as a people, which is not just a trauma, which is important, but we need, we need a sense that, that resilience is possible, that, that we can overcome and that we can continue to move forward through this, these constant sort of um, uh, transgressions. Well, transgressions is probably too light of a word, but through these, these constant sort of um, uh, you know, horrible circumstances and, and 400 years of, of black people in this con on this continent um, spinning uh, trauma into gold um, is enough to have people really revere and really appreciate African-Americans for the lessons that they, are, that they can teach the world. They can teach the world about resilience. They can teach the world about, about strength. They can teach the world about so many things, but how the media has portrayed African-Americans is as pariah, as, as social pariah. And I, and I think, um, and so many of us around the world, whether it be in Nigeria, Caribbean, anywhere else in the world, think of African-Americans quite often in a negative light. And I think that has been um, the, the destructive um, force uh, that has come from allowing other people to tell our stories. You know, when we tell our own stories, we, ha we have great power. And so th that was essentially the inspiration for me. I wanted to recontextualize the events in a way that would empower my son, would empower our community, and would give us the strength to continue, um, to continue fighting and continue moving forward. Um, because there, there is no, um, there is nothing that comes from, from from really standing still and not continuing to to fight for justice and equality. And I think, I if think I could say, yes, could I add something to that? Um, it is true that other people have been telling our story. And I think that's why this um, genre of storytelling is becoming quite popular. And it is imperative that people who have been marginalized, um, regardless of where you are in the world, should tell their stories. Um, recently, I was having a conversation and I mentioned that, um, you know, people seem to sort of um, fear telling their story for fear of stigmatization. But if you don't tell your story, then how do you get the message across? Uh, and if the story is then told on your behalf, it's not the story that you want people to know about. And as a continent, the African continent has always survived on oral history. And we're losing so much of that oral history because people are not writing it down. And so I am encouraging people, if you have grandparents, great-grandparents, aunties, uncles, ask, what is the story? Because without that story, you're going to read somebody else's version of this story. There's so many books that are out there, great books, as I call them. I think people know what I refer to when I say the great books that omit the power of women. Um, and yet women play an essential role. So if women do not begin to stand up and tell their stories, if Africans do not begin to stand up and tell their stories, and there's so many stories to be told. I mean, we've got similar situations here with NSARS. It is about police brutality. It is about negating the rights of people to stand up, to be seen, to speak, to express themselves. And if we do not collectively take it on, we're going to lose our youth. There was a line in the film about the, the school to prison pipeline. It was very poignant. For those of us who have lived abroad, we know what it means. But over here, 
Is it that different? You have lots of youth who have gone to university, don't have any work, and the slightest thing that they do, they're carried off and they're put in prison or they're taken to the police, um, what do you call it, police centers and all of those things. It, it, the story is similar. We have to see that the story is similar wherever you are and we have to begin to address it. So again, thank you Mobilaji for telling this story. It needs to be told and I hope that you will consider coming to tell some stories from the motherland. I, I think it was um, Chimamanda Adichie who, who talked about the danger of a single story. Um, let me bring Mr. Boyo in here. How do you think Nollywood is doing in this regard in telling its own story um, at a time where there was so much urgency and so much pressure to turn out only entertainment content? Well, I, I don't think we're doing enough. And um, there, is, there is a big, big, big gap in Nollywood about making documentaries life stories, real. The, the audience is so focused on entertainment and fiction. They don't really want to deal with reality. That's how I put it. Because when you make a documentary, the, the viewership, the audience um, interest is so low. And I think because people do not want to deal with the hardship or whatever is going on in reality that they turn to entertainment and they turn to fictional stories as a way of escape. Because we've tried doing documentaries, it just doesn't have the same impact. I don't know why we don't like, it's a normal thing. Well, I, 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 let me take that back. I don't use the word normal. It's something that goes on a lot, especially in this part of the world. We don't like to deal with reality. We leave it for other people to tell stories. We leave it for other people to um, deal with. But it's, I wish people would just deal with what is going on. I know it's painful. I know here the hardship is just the same. There's prejudice here. There's um, um, police brutality. Everything that happens in America happens here in a different context, but it's the same thing. Do you understand? So I would say if they accept the documentaries that we do, because people don't watch it. I've done one or two documentaries and I tell you, it was like a letdown. But I'm, I'm hoping that if this film comes to Nigeria and because of the NSARS movement, people are beginning to feel like they have a right to watch this. They have a right to speak. They have a right to voice their opinions. So maybe this is the beginning. Maybe this is a catalyst for change, not just for Ferguson, but for Nigeria as well. Let's spend another minute, Mr. Labiwani, to talk about the backstory to this. I see that you worked with some fantastic people as well. David Oiloa was the producer on this one. Um, we're here talking about the challenge of, you know, putting out this kind of narrative <coughs> in Nigeria. Uh, but you have not, it's, it's not just about doing a movie. It's telling a story that is compelling. I mean, that is, I also know that a lot of funding would have gone into it, but it took you some six and a half years. How did you come up with that? I mean, how did you get the kind of um, international standard kind of production to make this happen? Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, when we started out, I mean, I, I went to 
certainly went to film school, um, you know, here. And um, I, I've studied with a lot of people who um, over the years have become very good at their craft. And so, um, <laughs> excuse me, it's okay. Uh, and so I was, uh, I was fortunate enough to, um, to be able to get one of them, my cinematographer on board. Um, essentially, I mean, essentially what happened was, um, as I had mentioned, my wife was seven months pregnant. I was thinking about, um, I, I, I kept thinking, I was doing uh, some filming in South Central Los Angeles, which is, is often um, maligned in the media as well. And we were looking at how people find hope, love, and beauty in the midst of um, in the midst of tragedy in South Central at the Jordan Downs housing projects. Um, again, creating a counter narrative that 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 um, that transforms the way in which um, people would see that community. And so we were doing that, looking at again hope, love, and beauty in, in that particular community. And uh, and then Michael Brown was killed. Um, and I kept thinking to myself, I've got to go to Ferguson. I've got to go to Ferguson. And it was. Um, you know, uh, a week later that, um, that my wife um, turned to me and, and without my, my prompting her because I didn't want to ask her to, to, to leave based on the danger of the situation uh, on the ground from what I'd been hearing from my friends who were in Ferguson. They were saying, you know, bring a hard hat, bring a bulletproof vest. You don't know what's going to happen. And so it was the last thing I was going to do was the last thing I was going to do was going to ask um, was ask my wife um, to go someplace that where I was going to endanger my life and then possibly not see my child being born so um but independent of, of my thinking it she turned to me and she said you know i think you need to go to ferguson i think you need to um you need to take that concept of hope love and beauty and finding hope love and beauty and you need to take it to uh take it to ferguson so so that's really how that initially happened and then um and then i was you know luckily i had some savings i had um you know family that helped us kick kickstart the process um, and but what we made sure we did um, in the beginning was we made sure that we shot as much quality footage as possible, right? Um, I think theoretically we could have shot something really quickly. We could have shot something, you know, um, poorly and just done it really quickly for the budget that we had. But my intention was like let's try to shoot it as, as you know, as professionally as possible. And if we run out of money, at least we have something to show that we can leverage and, and get other people on board. And so um, after about three years or so, I think if I remember correctly, yeah, about, after about three years or so, um, we had put together enough footage that um, then we were able to bring David Oyelo on uh, as well. Um, and, um, and then we were able to bring on uh, TJ Martin, um, who introduced me to David, um, who won the Academy Award for his film, Undefeated, and, and won uh, the Emmy Award for his other film, um, LA 92. So we wound up um, getting some really heavy hitters. Um, the, the rapper um, RZA, uh, from the Wu-Tang Clan, uh, for those of you who are hip-hop fans, um, <laughs> uh, old-school hip-hop fans, he um, he came on and did a song, you know, or with with his son, rather, um, and um, and so we were just, you know, I think once we had built the momentum and we had um, sort of, uh, you know, been able to demonstrate that we could do something that was really affecting and really um, well done, then I think people started to join, and, uh, and that's essentially... Um, how it happened. So we, we raised money in stages and in pieces with each person and each group of people coming in with a little bit more and a little bit more. Um, and we're, we're still raising money now for our Academy Award campaign because um, uh, as we know, those, those campaigns are very expensive because you have to do a lot of advertising to people in the Academy. So um, yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's, there's been a long sort of, um, uh, you know, trajectory um, with this project where 
where there were many times where um, I would say this for your audience as well. There were many times where I was uh, close to losing hope, um, where maybe I think I had even lost hope. I think, um, again, I go back to the idea of this being a spiritual process because I'll give you a couple of quick examples. Um, Michael Brown Sr., we had been calling him all the time when we landed on the ground in Ferguson and we could not get in touch with him. Um, so my crew decided uh, after shooting one day in Ferguson that they wanted to eat fried fish. And um, I didn't want to eat fried food. I want to eat something healthier. So, so I, I objected, but everybody seemed to want fried fish. So I said, okay, well, I'm not going to go against the wishes of, of my crew. So we all went to eat fried fish in Ferguson. And as we we're eating the fried fish, in walks Michael Brown Sr., and, and, and his wife, um, Calvina Brown. So had they not convinced me to eat fried fish, I would not have met Michael Brown Sr. at the fried fish place. So I jumped up and automatically went to talk to him. We were able to get our first interview. And then right after we got our first interview, literally a few minutes after I finished that first interview, his team called and said he wasn't available to be interviewed. So I just thanked them for their time. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then went about my business. So, so I mean, that was one of the moments, you know, we also ran it, Michael Brown's cousin, who's in the film, who talks about, you know, how this, this reminded him of a lynching. His cousin in the film, we, we met his cousin through, we were at McDonald's and we were setting up our camera. And, you know, and then this guy walks up to us and says, hey, you know, what are you guys doing? And then we explain it to him. And he says, well, I know Michael Brown's cousin. Do you want me to get him on the phone? And we're like, sure. And so he gets him on the phone. And then we get an interview with Michael Brown's cousin. I mean, the whole film, um, so many things happened um, in that sort of vein that, um, that I can't help but think that um, we were being you know, divinely guided in some sort of spiritual process because none of it uh, was planned. And even meeting David Oyelowo as well, um, I was depressed and walking around my neighborhood with my son who was two years old at the time. And I saw another father walking around the neighborhood in the middle of the daytime with his child and this is, this is Los Angeles, so we know if anybody's walking around in the daytime, they're probably in the film business, um, or, or worst case scenario, they're, they're in, the, in the music business, but they're in some sort of, in the, in the, in some sort of uh, artistic um, you know, profession. And so I started talking to him, we, and then we, we became friends. He was a filmmaker, um, and we talked for a few months, and he said, you know, look, I've been hearing you talk about this project and how difficult it is and all the challenges you're having. Um, I know this guy who won the Academy Award, who, you know, we grew up in the same city. He said, you know, maybe I can send it to him. This seems like something he's interested in. So he sends it to TJ Martin, um, who's the Academy Award winner that I mentioned earlier. And then TJ, um, you know, and then TJ decides he wants to come on board. And then TJ says, you know, I just had a meeting the week prior with David Oyelowo, and I think this would be a good project to bring him on board too. So then TJ brings David on board, and then David brought on another woman um, who's, uh, you know, uh, a billionaire, um, and a philanthropist and a producer in this country. And, um, and in doing so, you know, we just sort of opened up so many doors. But again, it all happened as a result of me walking around um, depressed, carrying my child and, and, not, and, and, and not knowing what was gonna happen. Um, and, then, uh, and then meeting this person, right? And, and this, this process has been, has been like this every step of the way. So, um, I, you know, I can't be more thankful for the miracles that have occurred. And I think the biggest lesson is, is is to hang in long enough for the miracles to happen, right? Keep doing the work and, and eventually, you know, keep doing the good work and eventually someone will, 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 will notice that you're doing the good work and they'll come on board. They may not come on board permanently. They may not come on board for a long period of time, but that, that's enough, just enough energy to give you the next boost to move Absolutely. to the next level, to move to the next level. And so that um, essentially was um, 
was sort of the emotional process um, around uh, Ferguson rises. It was, um, yeah. And then of course, to, um, to spend time with the families, to spend time with Michael Brown Sr. and to, to feel their grief and to feel their pain uh, was also thoroughly transformative as well. You know, just to, to, to know that, um, that these could, this could be my relatives, this could be, this could be any of us. Um, and to be able to, um, to know that they're carrying so much pain and to, um, you know, to really have an opportunity to honor that, that pain, to honor his son's legacy. Um, so as I, as I am trying to build a legacy for my son, he is also building a legacy around his son. And so in, in, in this sort of strange and serendipitous way, we are both on the same path, trying to build a legacy around and for our, our children. And so, um, you know, I was just, you know, extremely grateful to be able to have the opportunity to build a legacy or to help him tell the story and tell, you know, tell a story for him about himself and his son in a way that um, I don't think anybody else would have done. Very intriguing story, I must say. Uh, and thank God you made that decision for the fried fish, by the way. Uh, but but um, Michael Brown Jr.'s story, um, the incident was long before George Floyd and long before Black Lives Matter movement became this popular. I think one of the most important questions to ask would be if the you know public awareness has indeed culminated into some real and actual change. And perhaps you're also going to be in a better position to answer that question, given your experience, for instance, with the police, say some um, 10 years ago, uh, compared to what the reality is today in America. Right. Um, I mean, I think um, there are some things that have changed. Um, I don't want to be um, a doomsday uh, oriented person and say that, 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 that and say that nothing has changed. I think there's a tremendous amount that has changed primarily in the psyche of America. Laws and legislation have changed here and there. Um, there's been some diversity in the police department, certainly Ferguson Police Department, which was 6% Black, is now, I think, approximately 70% Black. Ferguson, which had a white, and never had a Black mayor, had, had a Black female mayor. Um, you know, we, we're seeing um, a change in, in the old guard. We're seeing faces and representation that we haven't seen before. Um, how much change that representation uh, can cause on the ground is, is yet to be seen. Um, you know, Senator Corey, uh, sorry, Congresswoman um, Corey Bush um, is, uh, it comes out of Ferguson and she's been really active with the, uh, the squad with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, um, you know, Ilan Omar and those folks in, um, in, in Congress to really um, bring about change. So we, we saw a lot, I guess, that came out of it, but we saw mostly the transformation of of, of people's lives, ordinary people who became activists, who became organizers, who, um, who became really astute at dealing with, um, with police, with the media in ways that, um, that they hadn't been before. So a lot of people found purpose. So I think that's the part that we cannot forget is that, um, <clears throat> is that out of all this, um, people were able to find a purpose in their pain. They were able to become organizers. They were able to contribute to their communities. We see, um, we saw the, <coughs> The, the surfacing of Black Lives Matter, Black, the emergence of Black Lives Matter, it existed before with Trayvon Martin, but it really sort of um, skyrocketed with um, the protests around um, Michael Brown Jr. 
um, in particular because they've been organizing, you know, for at least um, a year or two prior. Um, and so they were able to bring those, um, that, that knowledge to bear when Michael Brown um, Jr. was killed and a lot of, when a lot of people were on the streets um, and some people weren't even, you know, a lot of people weren't even necessarily part of Black Lives Matter, but it really propelled Black Lives Matter um, to the forefront. And, um, and so, um, so what we see as a result of that is we see um, some legislative changes that have happened. We see, um, we see elections, uh, some shifts in elections, um, and, um, and ultimately, I mean, I think what we're seeing is, um, is really the, the emergence of, of a, a new global mindset that says um, we're not going to uh, stand on the, on the side of, of oppression and oppressors anymore. So you see people from, you know, Japan to, um, to Korea to, you know, all sorts of places around the world standing for Black lives in a way that we had never seen before, knowing that even though they're in a, in a sort of homogeneous culture, maybe in a place like Korea or, or somewhat homogeneous culture, that, that they, their lives are inextricably um, connected to, to ours on the other side of the world. And I think that's what we're seeing now is, is that there's, a, there's a, a palpable psychological shift. And now how do we harness that shift to turn it into, um, into something that really, um, that really um, you know, makes a difference in the world? And I think much like SARS in Nigeria, um, the protest happened. The protest ended. Um, there, there's a feeling of, of despair, I think, among certain sectors. But, um, but what we're seeing is that, um, that you can, we cannot go backwards. We cannot, our eyes cannot be closed again once they've been opened. I do agree with you. We, we, we for lack of a better word, um, the world is woke to all the injustices and all the discrimination and all the racial profiling um, that, that goes on. I, I was recently a victim of racial profiling and um, I, was, I, I think I was in shock being part of it and experiencing it. Not that I've never experienced it before, but you know, I, I, I don't want to say at my age, but I, I wasn't expecting it. And it was, it, was, it was as if I was having an out-of-body experience. And yet I was thoroughly there and watching this thing unfold and interacting with the individuals within this context. Um, and when America, I finally America said to them, um, it was actually in the United Kingdom. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it was just interesting the way it unfolded. And I'm not going to say that this was white, you know, Caucasian on African, because some of the players were of the same complexion as I am. And there were, you know, Muslim, there were Christian. It was just incredible how it unfolded and and to think that that is still occurring in the 21st century when we live in a global digital age where we're all interconnected i mean look at us right now we're in different parts of the world but we're connected and um, we're talking about you know diversity and equality and justice and a sense of belonging i mean we belong to this earth we belong here we have we're all here for a purpose and no one should oppress another person or take away the right to be that being that you were gifted 
to, to be here and to present and to, and to be yourself and to contribute to society. So there is a need to change the mindset for a better global society. And um, we have to start with the young ones, you know, the Gen Z who is just coming up. Actually, they're, they're really aware of what they want, how they want it, how they wish to interact. Um, and it's moving it through. Uh, it, it's just a powerful film. And I'm, I'm so glad that we're doing it on Human Rights Day because what better way to, to commemorate human rights than to speak about a film that talks about the most fundamental thing, the right to be, the right to live, the right to be respected, the right to thrive, the right, period. Yeah, and I, I think um, to your point, um, you know, the Indian, the farmers in India that were being beaten by the Indian police, they can understand um, what this film is about. Um, I actually had, interestingly enough, I had some conversations with international distributors who, who thought this was too local of a film to, um, to really appeal to anybody outside the United States. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and I was flabbergasted because I kept thinking, well, wait a second, did you see the end of the film and all the millions of people around the world standing up and pro like, isn't that an audience, you know? Did you, are you not watching the news and noticing that, that people are getting beaten by police in Colombia, they're getting beaten by police in Nigeria, they're getting beaten by police in India, you know, like all those people understand. So mm -hmm. how is this not an international issue, right? And even if you look beyond um, police, everybody experiences pain and, 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 they, and everybody is striving in, in many ways, well, we hope, right? To find purpose in their pain, right? And so at the very least, if you're a person who's experienced pain, and, and is attempting to find purpose in, the, in, in that pain, you can look at the journey of Michael Brown Sr. and you can look at it from just that general human perspective without having any relationship to the police, without having any relationship to black people and see that this is really about a person's journey toward finding that purpose in, in, in pain. And you could actually um, draw from that to learn and, and, to, and to sort of help your journey um, toward, you know, you know, assist yourself in finding, you know, purpose in your pain. So I think um, it, it, it just has been extremely shocking to see, um, to see some of the, the limitations that still exist in the minds of, um, of, of our, um, of, of again, of the people who, who are in control of the telling of our stories or the distribution of our stories, right? Which is, again, all the more reason why we have to tell our own stories, but we also have to own the infrastructure that distributes our own stories as well. So that way um, we have a place them in the world right because you can tell it or you can make it but if no one sees it right um it didn't exist right um so i think um the work that uh that dr ama is doing is imperative right because i think it, it's transforming um the stories that we tell about the youth the stories that we tell about women the stories that we tell about um the accept acceptability of vulnerability um you know um you know if you look at the film ferguson rises you see um Michael Brown Sr. And we have all kinds of presuppositions about working class black people or about black people in general, maybe. And, and then when we make that more specific, we have all kinds of presuppositions about black men. And I think Michael Brown really breaks, you know, through a lot of those pre presuppositions and allows us to see for the first time, I believe, um, black men as three-dimensional human beings who have feelings, who have concerns and cares about their children. Um, it's sad to say that, but I cannot recall a film, uh, even as a filmmaker, uh, with all the research and all the films I've seen, I cannot recall a single film where I've seen a Black father 
um, at the forefront of the conversation, you know, maybe standing in the background looking um, a little withdrawn or reserved and, 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 you know, somewhat visibly moved by the situation, but to be, you know, front and center, uh, yeah. you know, in terms of the conversation, I don't think I've ever seen a film that, that, that centers um, black masculinity in, in a way that, um, that also um, shows the black, black masculinity is more than aggression. Is, is more than entertainment, you know, is more than, you know, that there's a vulnerability there, there's a humanity there, right? And by extension, um, we get to see his son who was killed as a human being by seeing his father as a human being, right? And so, um, and so this film, I think, is, is unique in that way. And, 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 you know, and I wanted to be that, you know, to be specifically focused on the father because um, as Michael Brown said um, in the film, Michael Brown Sr., that um, we forget about the fathers, you know, and um, absolutely, and because society dictates that men cover their emotions, um, the the trauma and the pain often leads to aggression out in the world, right? And so, if 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 the youth can see this film, and there's another opportunity there, if they can see this film, and young black men can see this film and say, "Wow, um, Michael Brown Sr.'s son was killed, and he didn't go out and kill everybody." And, you know, in response and in retaliation, but he decided to take that um, and channel it into in, into something that actually made a difference for the community rather than destroy the community that he lived in or destroy himself even. Um, this is an opportunity really, a, 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 um, a, 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 an opening for younger people to um, to learn those lessons as well from the film. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I applaud you, Dr. Ama, for the stories you're telling um, and, and, and know that this is... Um, this is, uh, we're doing similar work, um, you know, and uh, all, all of this is part of the storytelling process, right? Um, reshaping minds is part of the storytelling process. And it's also part of the legacy, right? Because, um, you know, we can go to Europe and we can find these, you know, fabulous museums with all kinds of European art and all kinds mm -hmm. of European history, but we go to Africa, you don't see anything. <laughs> where, are these, where are these museums that honor our culture, right? <laughs> um, you know, we talk about, you know, everybody says, well, it doesn't make money to do this and blah, blah, blah. For, for Europeans and, you know, and other cultures, it's not about money. It's about legacy. It's about history. It's about, it's about, uh, it's about storytelling. You know? uh, and so, so we put these items in a museum, and now they're worth more because we put them in a museum. We've created the value. You know? we, didn't, we, didn't let the, we did not allow the value to be imposed upon us. We create the value. So how now do we create the value with our culture and with our stories? And with our art, you know, um, that's the real question. I like us to Well, talk I'm right so now. glad you brought that up. Um, I just wanted to add something. Just a few weeks ago on International Men's Day, we should have invited you. We did talk about why men should cry. So for you to make that connection and to um, um, celebrate, for lack of a better word, and that's a poor word to use, but to acknowledge the emotions and the pain that a, a man will experience in the loss of a child, because you're absolutely correct. The, the focus is always on the mother, the females, is either you want them, see them enraged and you know losing their mind, so to speak, but the men do go through that and they go through it silently. And there's no reason for that at all because they are human and we all have emotions and you're absolutely correct. Most of the time when you see men acting out aggressively, they're probably 
suppress so much pain and anger that that moment comes where they can no longer do it and the lid just explodes. I witnessed one the other day. I mean, I saw this grown man having a complete meltdown, tantrum. And I thought, my goodness, you know, I'm not going to tell you exactly what I was thinking because, (laughs) but if you know me, you know what I was thinking at that moment. And I thought this poor man, after he's blown his fuse, is probably going to go home and beat up his wife or scream at his children because something else goes wrong. And it all boils down to his frustration that's been pent up for so long. So we do need to encourage young people, male and female, to express themselves, express your emotions, tell your story. We are listening. And most importantly, as you just said, there is value in everything that you bring to the forefront. And the value comes from what you give to it. You speak value to things. It's not about buying an an iPhone or the, the latest this, that or not. That's not it. What is the value of your life? What does it mean to you? What are you here to do? How are you going to add value to your society, to your community? You know, so that is the poignant portion of what we need to focus on. And it needs to be part of the educational process. It's not about regurgitating information or reading the great books or reading the things that have been um, forced onto us you know, by the by the non-Africans, because there's so much history here, but they don't teach history in Nigeria. So what are we talking about? Well, let's, let's get the stories out there. Let's bring the history forefront. And all of this is history. It's history yeah. for the next generation that's coming up. And that's exactly. the power in there. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and when you tell your story, um, not only do you heal yourself, but you also give other people the opportunity to heal and you give them, you, you invite them uh, by by telling your story, you invite them into uh, into a kind of healing um, that can be transformative. And I think ultimately, um, as someone who's a father now uh, uh, to a seven year old boy, um, I, I keep or soon to be seven to be seven next month. Um, I, I keep thinking um, legacy, right? Um, you know, it, it's 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 not just about the enjoyment in the here and now, but what can I provide? Um, you know, maybe a hundred years from now that will have people look back and say, you know, and say that he added value um, to this planet and, and, that, and that my son would be able to stand up <coughs> and be proud and say, I am, I am um, Mubaladji Alambiwanu's son, you know, or my grandson will be able to stand up and say, or granddaughter, whatever, will be able to stand up and say, you know, I am, that was my grandfather, you know, and I think that um, is, the, is the true victory that, that many of us miss is that is that that legacy that we leave is, is, is really all that's going to be left after we are gone. The money, everything else might be spent. The cars will be old and, 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 and devalued, <coughs> but the legacy uh, will live on. And, and film has the ability, as we see with American cinema, that you know, the film has been preser- films that have been pres- preserved for a hundred years. Um, you know, it is possible that in a hundred years, people could watch. And, and see this film and still be moved and, and understand history in a different way. I'd like us to quickly uh, draw a connection between what happened in America and what we saw happen uh, some months ago in Nigeria. Uh, 400 plus days of protests in Ferguson um, and led to a global phenomenon um, that you acknowledged a few minutes ago that um, indeed there's been some changes. The narrative here in Nigeria has been that of um, the fact that civil disobedience cannot do much 
and um, cannot really cause the change that is needed. Uh, I'm told that you lived in Nigeria for a few years in the 70s uh, while your dad was um, the Lagos State Commissioner for Health and Finance. Yeah. Seven um, years, more than a few years, seven. <laughs> I didn't get that. Seven years. Seven years. Well, seven is few compared to... <laughs> oh, not for me. <laughs> so um, uh, just talk to us very quickly um, about the lessons um, Nigeria can glean from these, particularly when you live in a community or in a society where um, the system is built in such a way to resist any form of protest. So, um, you know, I was watching your documentary and I found that, that even though uh, the issue of police brutality was huge, uh, when you look at how the police dealt with the riot in Ferguson, I mean, it's a much more developed um, form than what we experienced back home. So I'll get, I, um, there was a use of tear gas, rubber bullets, I'm not sure that much um, casualty was recorded during those protests, but that's not the same situation back here at home. How do you think that um, young Nigerians can keep using their voices, you know, but um, in more or less a very difficult terrain in Nigeria? I mean, personally, um, I, I can't say, I mean, it's been a long time since I've lived on the ground in Nigeria, but, um, but I know that there are other examples from around the world, right? of authoritarian regimes and environments. So we look at Egypt. Um, I have a good close friend that, um, <laughs> that is from Egypt and that lives in Egypt and was there during um, the uprisings in Egypt and the revolution in Egypt. And, um, and I think what she shared with me is very important, which is that the people rose up. There was a violent military repression. There were people killed, but the biggest challenge that they had was that they didn't have um, an electoral infrastructure in which to then promote their own candidate to office, right? So, um, so while we're organizing on the streets of, uh, of Lagos or while people are organizing on the streets of Lagos, what other tangential um, or, or parallel organizing is taking place in the political sphere, um, in the economic sphere, where, where we can generally, then we can, then we can bring these things together, right? Um, in the end, once there's, um, there's victory on the streets, right? Um, so, you know, you have to be pushing, it has to be a multi-pronged uh, approach where you're pushing on the streets and you're agitating as it talks about in the film, um, but you're also, um, you're also pushing legislation, you're also pushing, maybe not in Nigeria, it may not even be legislation, but you're also pushing, um, you know, sort of coalescing behind um, a particular political party or something of that sort um, that allows you then to have a voice um, that is clearly articulated when you, um, when you, you know, when you have access to that kind of uh, a victory like they did in Egypt, which was quickly lost, right, as we saw. Um, so in order to sort of create some sort of lasting impact, I think those things are going to have to be um, at play. We have to go now. Let's talk about the road to Oscar and your optimism in Africa. Um, road to Oscar, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to... Um, borrow uh, Dr. Ama's uh, optimism and, and say that, um, you know, certainly um, if you follow us on Instagram at, at Ferguson underscore rises, you'll, you'll, you'll see our journey 
there. Um, and certainly, um, you know, again, like I said, we're always raising money. So even if it's a dollar, um, you can certainly donate on our website, fergusonrises.com or um, hopelovebeauty.com, but fergusonrises.com is the easiest way to get there. Um, I mean, uh, I am hopeful um, that America, um, particularly after George Floyd, I think there was renewed interest in, in, in my documentary because people saw that this, uh, at least white America in particular, saw that this was um, a systemic thing, not just a one-off thing, you know, that they hadn't been paying attention to, but a systemic thing. And uh, so I'm hopeful that now um, those individuals who are, um, are make up most of the academy voters um, have a sense that, you know, after, um, again, after George Floyd, after Ahmaud Arbery um, that, that took place, that, you know, the gentleman that was killed while jogging, right, um, by uh, two white um, uh, vigilante type individuals, one of them, one of whom was an ex-police officer. Um, you know, uh, again, Kyle Rittenhouse, who also who also uh, killed a couple people at a protest as well. Um, I, I hope that there's enough momentum to understand that, that um, there are deep seated issues um, within our country that need to be addressed and that this film um, opens the space for that kind of dialogue. So I, I'm, I'm prayerful and hopeful that the Academy will um, will see the value um, in, in pushing this to the forefront um, in order to inspire um, some sort of a dialogue. Um, so that, that's, that's my hope, certainly. So I, I needed a password to see the documentary. Are there plans for a wider release? And, or is there someone listening or watching this who wants to, who wants to see it? Yeah, um, we have, um, we're signing a deal right now with Amazon um, um, via PBS, um, uh, public broadcasting um, system, I believe. What does PBS? What does S stand for? Mm -hmm. uh, public broadcasting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think it's system. Service. Service. Public broadcasting mm -hmm. service. Thank mm -hmm. you. I never ever, um, you know, speak of PBS out, you know, outside of the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, you know, anyway, outside of, you know, just using the, the letters PBS. But um, so we'll be on Amazon um, uh, globally in, um, I believe, April or May. Um, so the film will actually be, um, be viewable in Nigeria. I made sure um, that when we signed our agreement that um, they were not interested in the rest of the world, um, but I made sure that, um, that, I, that they made it available, you know, and, and, and made it clear to them that we, um, you know, I have relatives all over the world um, who need to see this film and, and their associates and other people around the world. They were only going to distribute it domestically on Amazon, and I, and I um, objected to that um, vociferously <laughs> so, yeah thank you so much for sharing with us i'm just gonna take my boy mr boyer's closing remark on this one well um first of all i think this film definitely needs an oscar nod because um it's a global film it's it touches on everyone's lives i mean there was a lady in the a caucasian lady in the film that said the police brings back her dog and they know her dog. Her dog's name is Butter. And compare that to uh, African-American who has been arrested like 10 times in one month. And this lady's dog is being brought by the police. So you look at that and you're like, this is totally, I don't even know how to explain it, but this is a global film and it touches all lives. And I want to say congratulations to Mobileji for bringing this to the forefront. And we, we are going to use the power of social media to get this film 
awareness to get it out there. Just tell us what we need to do. And I personally am going to do it and I'm going to support this film as best as I can. And I implore everyone to go check it out on Instagram, Facebook, social media. Social media is very powerful. Everything, information goes out with the speed of light. So congratulations once again. And I thank you all for being part of this podcast. Well, thank so, you. I, I, I do want to say one one more thing. Sorry, now that, uh, that Mr. Boyer brought that up, um, I think um, I, I really want to um, partner with the Nigerian consulate and embassies um, across the world. I think maybe there's a way that we can do screenings at, at Nigerian embassies in different countries around the world um, to to get this film out there. I, I really want it to be utilized and and have other people have access to it. Um, just um, maybe a, last year, I think it was a Nigerian American child was killed in San Francisco. So I think there's this concept that this only happens to African American people. There's this misconception that it only happens in, in, in America, but that even beyond that, you know, there's a misconception that it only happens to African American people. But um, Amadou, Amadou Diallo was killed in 1999. You know, the police are not asking if you're African. They're not, you know, they, there's no time to ask all those questions. They're, they're seeing um, someone's complexion and, uh, and they're making decisions accordingly. So I think we have to understand as African people, as Caribbean people, as whatever people we are from anywhere around the world, that, um, that we are all facing the same sort of um, potential fate and, and we need to, uh, to stand up, whether it's in Poland or anywhere else, and say, um, you know, we, um, we, are, we deserve the respect and we're going to, um, and we're going to demand that, that we be treated with respect. Absolutely. I was stopped once for going into my own house because it was a nice neighborhood. That happened while I was going into my own house. There were seven cop cars. And I was like, this is my house. And they apologized, but I felt so, I don't even know how to describe how I felt. In my own house, they stopped me. So I this know- This in America? Yes, in Philadelphia. Oh, wow, well, yeah. No, there was actually, I mean, sadly, the last thing, um, there was um, a young African-American man who, um, who was carrying a sandwich and entering his house and, and was killed by police. Oh, yes. While he was carrying, he had just come home for lunch and he was opening the door to enter his own house, carrying a sandwich, and they, and yes. they, and they shot and killed him right there, right in, in, in the doorway of his own house, entering his own house, doing nothing. And, they, and they, of course, they looked for a record. There was no record. There was nothing. He had never done anything. He was a completely innocent person just entering his own home, and they had decided that somehow he was a criminal. And yes. without, even, without even arresting him or stopping him, they just assassinated him, you know, um, you know without any um, real... Um, recourse uh, until now uh, we we hope um so yes this is this is a this is an issue that um that is global we see it in the touches everyone yeah. yeah exactly and so yeah thank you thank you dr alma thank you mr boyo as well um thank you mr thank you. Ogun, oguntoye. oguntoye oguntoye yes Exactly. Thank you I so much for sharing with us on this episode. Um, if we were to sit on the academy panel, just to be sure that you have the award already. Well, at your lap, Dr. Abba, thank you so much for sharing. Um, and we wish you all the best in your future endeavors, Mr. Olapiwono. That's thank our you. episode for the. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
your your daughter wishes to be on, so you're going to give her a chance. No, it's okay. She can she can be on. Yeah. Exactly. She's she's affirming. We usually allow saying. them. She was affirming. Exactly. Yeah, so can we see can, can we see her, please? Similarly. She, she wanted to come anyway. She looked like she wanted to, she wanted to be a part of uh... she, she usually does come and be part of it every now and then. Hello, my darling. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much for being here. I know, and I'm looking forward to you holding Oscar. I strongly <laughs> believe it. You will hold it, and I hope you've got your speech ready. Thank you. Because you yourself have a story to tell. I can't wait for you to share that story of yours. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Nifemi, as always. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, everyone. And remember, human rights is everybody's rights. Human rights is everybody's rights. Human Rights Day today, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Thinking Reimagined. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast and welcome your comments, insights, and learnings as we strive to transform our global society. A change in mindset, engagement, collaboration, dialogue, awareness, and education. Thinking Reimagined. Changing the mindset for a better global society.